It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. Although Nimble Thimble has closed the brick-and-mortar quilt shop in Gilroy, California, Linda Williams is excited to see what she can do next to help her town. Thanks to my previous guests, Annie Smith and Danielle Klein, for telling Linda about a quilter's life. Linda and I had such a wonderful visit. Linda, thanks for being on A Quilter's Life. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you, Paula. I'm very glad to be here. Let's start. Where were you born and raised? I am a Hoosier. I was born in Indiana. I have a sister who was born in Indiana, and when my mom told her she was a Hoosier, she cried. She she didn't know what it was. Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) Well, it's never made me cry, but. (laughs) (laughs) And what part of Indiana was that? In the northern part, Fort Wayne. And then went to school, ended up at Notre Dame for 25 years. Oh, wow. Do you have a special childhood memory? I thought about that. And kind of pretty much, I think I have the same memories, almost exact same memories as everybody who was raised in the 60s, you know, running free in the streets and, you know, no seatbelts and all those sorts of things. But I did come up with one. I think I ended up being my mother totally, which most of us probably do anyway. But when I was about five or six years old, our neighbor's garage burned down. And my mom saw this charred building standing there and she went over and asked, could she have the lumber? And she pulled the siding off of that garage and she built me a tree house. I can remember she had to finish the inside because one side of the boards was charred. So she put the charred side in on the outside and on the outside, she put the charred side in. So it was almost insulated. And everybody always said to her, wow, you did such a fantastic job because you finished the inside of a tree house. And she just said yes and moved on, when in reality, she had no choice. It was that or nothing. And I watched her build that, and I played in it all those years, and I knew how she built it and why she built it that way. And I think that kind of made me not into a quilter, per se, but into a person who, kind of like our quilting ancestors, took what they had, worked with it, and made it do. And it gave me a real leg up on quilting, I think. (laughs) So there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to picture this treehouse. Was it like lovely? Was it It like three sides or did it have four sides and a door? Oh, heck no. It had everything built in windows and it was painted in polka dots on the inside. Oh, it was it was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. There was enough room for three of us to sleep out in sleeping bags in it. How fun. Yeah, it was great. Now, besides quilting, did you have employment elsewhere? Yes. 
when I got out of college, I had a degree in philosophy, which, of course, that just lined me up for a whole lot of jobs. And I ended up in a rat lab at Notre Dame, which took me into a career in biotech. Wow. And so I was a protein biochemist for about, oh, probably about 10 years. And then my boss called me in and said, you have a choice. You don't have a degree. So you're going to go nowhere in the chemistry lab. So you can either choose to take a job here as director of operations, which meant doing everything nobody else wanted to do. Or you can take this new job we have in quality assurance, which at that time was a brand new thing, having systems and checking data and putting all the controls in place. And I said, well, I'll just stay in the chemistry lab. Thank you. None of those appeal to me. And he said, no, you don't understand. I'm offering you this job or you can leave or I'll fire you. You pick. So I got into quality assurance, which being a whole brand new field meant I didn't have to have a degree in chemistry or anything else in particular. And so I did that for the next 25 years. Wow. Yeah. It was quite a ride. <laughs> so in a way, you got to put a lot of the policies and procedures in place for that, didn't you? Yeah, it was great fun. And then they had to do what I told them. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> so you were born and raised in Indiana. What took you to California? The same guy who told me that I could either take the job or he'd fire me. He was one of my best friends. And he connected me through a series of serendipity, I guess is what it was. But I met a friend of his who happened to be taking a research lab in California into production mode and needed somebody to help him do it. And we hit it off, and I moved to Pasadena. Oh, neat. So besides quilting, what other crafts do you do or have you done? Probably, again, like all quilters, I do the typical, any crafty thing that comes my way. Anything from card making to mosaics to stained glass to woodworking. You name it, I've tried it. A few of them stick for a year or two or five, but usually it's quilting I come back to. Hmm. How about other hobbies? Boy, I'd like to say I run marathons, and but no, I don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do do a bit of yoga. Some years I'm totally into it, and some years I don't do it at all, but it's a recurring theme, and that's about the extent of it for anything that has any redeeming value to it at all. <laughs> well, you know, there's other hobbies like cooking or wine tasting. <laughs> oh, I can drink a bottle of wine. <laughs> but I don't know whether it's good or bad when I drink it. Um, no, I do a lot of reading, a lot of gardening. And I'll take a glass of wine or two now and then. But I spend most of my time creating things, I guess, mm -hmm. one way or another. So I'm not sure if you have an answer for, do your hobbies somehow show up in your quilting? 
I think only by happenstance. I'm driven by color and geometry and that sort of thing. If I find a good piece of fabric that has some meaning to me, I find a usually weird way to use it and put it in things so that I can see it. But no, I don't set out to make quilts about quilting or about gardening or about books or anything else. Mm-hmm. Just as it happens. Tell me about who introduced you to quilting. I'd say I'm probably 80% self-taught. My grandmother made quilts and my mother did not. My mom was a real hands-on person. She had tree houses to build. But she did teach me, again, that whole thing about design and construction and doing it yourself and the importance of putting your personality into what you do. So she could teach me the mechanics of sewing and did teach me. And my mother, I guess, was my long-term inspiration. And all my aunts sewed. So I had all those influences. But when I decided I wanted to quilt, I just picked up some fabric scraps and went to the sewing machine and did it myself and made my first quilt when I was, I don't know, a young teenager. And it was really bad. Because I didn't know any of the rules. Yeah. And then when I was in my 30s, I finally took a class and, man, it made it so much easier. So kind of a little bit of both, you know, kind of a wild Mustang in some perspective. And yet I do appreciate the need to follow rules. But it took me a long time. It probably took me 15, 20 years to kind of create my own style, know what I was doing. Huh. I'm wondering what you thought when you finished that quilt after the quilt class, comparing what you had been doing to the new information you got. Oh, man, I realized all the time I had wasted. Oh, okay. (laughs) There is great value in knowing the right way to do things. Not that you have to do it that way, Mm -hmm. but even if you're the most arty quilter in the world, and have your own style, there's still a time when you need to make a partial seam. And if you don't know how to do it, you will waste hours trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So it's good to listen to those old quilters who know all the tricks because the tricks really are useful. Yeah. Do you have a favorite quilt? Well, I have an awful lot of favorite quilts. I used to say I give all my quilts away. But I don't. I've kept probably 20, 25 of them. And I live by myself and I live in California. So most of the year, quilts are actually a burden as opposed to a useful thing to have. But I think I'll always have those 20, 25 and I may end up having another 25 more. But they are special in one way or another. And I need them just to have them. I did send you a picture of what I think is my favorite quilt, just from a general perspective. It's an Alexander Henry fabric called Bow Wow Chow Main. And I used it to make a one block wonder quilt that's beautiful in itself for the colors. Lots of oranges and greens and purples and bright colors. The fabric itself is a picture of dogs eating garbage behind a Chinese restaurant. 
with garbage cans and Chinese lanterns and spaghetti and all kinds of things. And to me, that's fabric at its best, you know, just what else could you think of to put into that fabric? And I could think of nothing. And that's what it's all about, the fabric and the geometry. Uh-huh. Now, I take it that you had several of those panels to make the one block wonder, and then you put one of the panels on the back? No, actually, that fabric is yardage. Okay. So it's a repeating design. And what I put on the back of it was a panel that I don't even know how long. I've probably been carrying it around for at least 40 years. But it was a huge panel. It was probably a one-yard panel of dogs playing poker. Yeah. You know, the painting. Uh-huh. And where better to put it than on a Bow Wow Chow Main quilt? Because <laughs> I looked at the colors in it and I... Oh, yeah, that color's in the One Block Wonder, and, and that color's over there. Yeah, so, it was made for it. So that's why I thought it, that maybe that's how you've done it. Oh, neat. And when you're working on your quilts, how about a tool that you just love? My only rule for a tool is it can't be a one-trick pony tool. I don't want a marking pen that only works on black fabric. And I don't want a ruler that will only make one block. The more things it can do, the better tool it is for me. Hmm. Like, for example, the disappearing ink pens. Yeah. What a brilliant idea that was, you know, no more marks to get out. No more. Do you need a fat line or a narrow line? You get a disappearing ink pen. It doesn't matter if it's the size of a Sharpie. It's going to go away. As long as you know that it will go away. You can do anything you want with it. And if you screw it up, you don't care. That's my kind of tool. Yeah. When you're working on your quilts, do you have a favorite part of the process or do you enjoy the whole thing? I enjoy some things more than other things, depending on the quilts I'm making. But it's not predictable. Sometimes I I really enjoy designing it and it's great from the start. Sometimes... I'm working on the binding before I really find what I'm enjoying doing. But I don't think I've ever made one that's bad all the way through. (laughs) That would be torture, huh? Yeah, it would be. Share with me your worst quilting experience. Probably the quilt I made when I was 15 and didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. I don't know that I've ever had a bad experience. Yeah. Oh, well, actually one. I made a quilt. I gave it to a very good friend. This just occurred to me. And for a period of four or five years, when I would go visit, I would always look for the quilt to show up somewhere, even if it was a linen closet. I didn't care. And I thought, well, maybe it got lost somewhere or maybe she gave it away. I didn't know. Didn't really feel I could ask. Yeah. And time went on. And one day she mentioned the quilt that I had made for her. And I said, oh, yeah, whatever happened to that? And she said, well, you know, we had a dog. It had been, I don't know, at that point, probably 10 years. And she said the dog chewed the corner of it, and I didn't know what to do. So I I just threw it out. Oh. I guess bad experience in the sense that obviously it was not a keepsake for her. 
which, you know, in retrospect, it doesn't have to be a keepsake if somebody can get some use out of it. But the fact that she probably would have used it for years beyond that if she had just said to me, hey, my dog ate my quilt. Can you fix it? <laughs> you know, and I would have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I wish I could have changed the way it all worked out kind of experience. Yeah. Wow. What do you think has drawn you to making quilts rather than using your time doing other things? I think my brain is wired a little bit differently than other people's. When I was young, very young, I was all about math and science and all those very structured left brain kind of things, completely analytical as a kid. And... You know, I didn't quite know how to play, you know, like make-believe. What the heck is that? But as I grew older and watched, you know, friends or especially in college, kind of convinced myself to let myself have that freedom of being creative and realized how much that meant to me and how big a part of who I was that consumed most of me, the creative part. And I kind of threw away all of the structure. And then I ended up with a job in quality assurance where it was all about structure. You know, people's lives depended on me being able to follow my own rules. I was kind of torn both sides of the coin. And quilting worked in so well with that. You know, there's the geometry and the quarter inch seams and 45 degree angle and you name it, there's all kinds of math and science involved in quilting. And yet it's the arty aspect of that, the color and the curves and all of those things that you have to combine the two. So quilting gave me a way to escape from the geometry by dealing with the art and escape from the art by dealing with the structure. And I think it just let me pull the two halves of my schizophrenic personality <laughs> together. Well, that's neat. It could be really helpful, huh? It can be. It can also be very maddening because, you know, I'll go off on some arty tangent. And in the end, I end up with something that's structured anyway. And again, if I had just done it the easy way and followed the <laughs> rules, I could have gotten there a lot easier. <laughs> But you wouldn't have had the fun in figuring it out. It's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, who do you normally make your quilts for? I think selfishly I make them for me. Well, occasionally I get roped into making a specific quilt for somebody. And it's usually torture. But if I make a quilt, my preference is to make the quilt I want to make because I want to make it. No other reason. In the end, I give them all away or donate them to charity or send them to an auction or whatever. But initially, I make them for me. Mm -hmm. So it's all it's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I don't think that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's all about me. <laughs> uh, what are you working on right now? Today, I'm working on a New York beauty. A very dear friend of mine has created a pattern and a series of classes. And again, it goes right back to what I was saying before. I showed her this picture of this New York beauty I had seen, and she kind of ran with it and 
made it completely abstract. And in the process of making it, she took notes for a class and she also divvied it up into a six, I think it's six block class. One is on sewing curves, one is on partial seams, one is on how to use freezer paper, and each one builds on the other. And in the meantime, as you learn these very old-fashioned structured techniques, you learn how to make this very abstract New York beauty. And so it's kind of that same theory I was talking about earlier, where you have to combine the two. You have to have that flexibility to do what you have to do to make it work. And at the same time, take advantage of everything that all our grandmothers and great-grandmothers learned the hard way. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can use their knowledge to create what we want to. So anyhow, that's what I've been making. Oh, neat. What colorway is that? Every color. <laughs> okay. It's, it's totally weird. <laughs> <laughs> Please share a quilting tip. You know, quilters on a whole are very kind of laid back and, well, they're either very, very laid back and whatever happens is good or they're very, very structured. And if their points aren't precise, they can't sleep at night. Either way, it's really not that important. Whether you're going for an art quilt and it doesn't work out the way you think, not the end of the world. And if your points don't match, definitely not the end of the world. Just take a step back. Don't take it so seriously and let it be what it wants to be. Because if you go a little bit outside your box or if you can't get that extra row to fit, that's okay. Nobody cares. It's still beautiful. Whatever it is you created, just let it be what it is and move on. You know, there's always another chance. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people cry over their quilts. I've seen them throw them away. I've seen them give away quilts that mean something to them all because they're not exactly what they thought they were going to get. And, you know, no part of life is that dramatic. Just give yourself a little bit of slack and enjoy it. That's my hint. That's great. Now you have a quilting business. Can you share with me how you went from having quilting as a hobby to having it be a business? Sure. Again, my life is one serious accident after another. I just go with it. After I moved to California, I moved from Pasadena to Gilroy, just south of San Jose, because a guy called me. I had been laid off from the job that I had for, oh, I'd probably been laid off about six months. And let me tell you, being laid off is the best job in the world. But this guy called me and he said, hi, my name is Nick and I think you want to work for me. And I said, well, Nick, I think you have the wrong number because I don't want to work for anybody. <laughs> So he convinced me that I should come to San Jose and interview for a job in Silicon Valley. And I did because it was a free trip to San Jose. Why not? And while I was there, he offered me the job. I met with a realtor, came to Gilroy and found a house all in a matter of four days, went home, packed up my house and moved. And that was great and started a new biotech job 
and that lasted in one form or another for about another 10 years. In the meantime, I met the local quilt shop in Gilroy, and I would go in for the weekly sew day and when I needed a project. And at some point in time, I said to the owner, you think you're about ready to retire? Because this town can't take two quilt shops, and I think that's what I want to do. And it kind of started off as a joke, and then time went on. And one day I walked in, and he said to me, do you still want to buy the quilt shop? And I said, you bet I do. And he took the keys out of his pocket and handed it to me. He said, we'll work out the details later. Wow. So it just, again, serendipity. So that day I quit my job and started working for him, worked for him for about six months and then took over the shop. You know, why not? When you're 50 years old, what are you waiting for? It's time to do what you love, right? Yeah. So you got the quilt shop. When was that? 2013. Normally I ask when you opened it, you know, how was it feeling when your first customer came in? But when do you feel that happened for you? We had set a tentative date for beginning of March that I would take over the shop. Mm -hmm. But on the condition that I would complete a full inventory of the shop so that I knew what I was buying and he knew what he was selling so that the price that we fixed on would be fair to both of us. I was okay with that because literally some of the things in the shop, I didn't even know what they were used for. I was just one quilter. I didn't know everything. A shop owner, I think, gets broader exposure to those kind of things. Plus, I didn't know what fabric was in the shop. I knew the ones I liked and the ones I had touched, but I definitely did not know everything in the shop. And doing an inventory is one way to get your hands on everything. So it was a very logical approach, but the 1st of March came and went, and I still hadn't finished the inventory. And we were doing a shop pop that started, I don't know when, say March 7th. So I walked in that day thinking I was helping out for shop pop, and he said to me, we're never going to get done if we don't just do it. So today's the first day of shop pop. It's your shop. Take it and run with it. Oh, wow. And I'm like, But that's in 15 minutes, and he's like, yep, (laughs) it's your shop today. So I never really had the chance to even have the buyer regret because I didn't even know how much I was paying for the shop at that point. But all of a sudden, instead of being the guy who swept the floors, I was in charge. So, you know, it's again, it's just the way I've lived my life. It's like, okay, let's just do it then. (laughs) So you didn't have to come up with the name because it was already named. Yeah. So I had the name probably less than six months later. I'm thinking, gee, I I wouldn't have named it this. But at that point, you can't really change it. There's too much marketing and investment in it. So it was called Nimble Thimble. It's a good name. Mm -hmm. It worked. The only trouble was people had a hard time saying it. And for some reason, they'd flip it around and call it Thimble Nimble all the time. Huh. I hadn't actually tried to say it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, say it 10 times fast. (laughs) You'll know if you've had that bottle of wine or not. (laughs) I read it several times, so I didn't think about trying to say it. 
<laughs> so you just closed the brick and mortar part of your store. How did that come about? I think just a convergence of different circumstances. I'm 67 years old, so it was time to think about all the other things in the world that I haven't done and all the hours of sleep I haven't gotten and everything else that's on the bucket list. And time was not necessarily running out, but I'm not getting any younger. So from that perspective, I knew that the time I would want to spend six days a week in the shop and the other day doing bookkeeping and ordering, that was limited. And then, of course, COVID hit, which wasn't necessarily good or bad for business, but it definitely made business completely different than it used to be. And the third thing was online shopping. And between the three of them, I decided that this was just the right time to end it. So I did. So you closed the shop that's the brick and mortar, but you kept the business going? Yes and no. This is probably the first time in my life that I haven't made a rash decision. And so I just kind of waited to see what would happen. I gave myself, initially I gave myself three months. I've extended that to six months now just to take stock and decide what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so I brought all my inventory home because, well, I really had no choice. You can't put fabric into storage for fear of moths and mice and humidity and whatever else you worry about. So I put it in my living room and my dining room and two bedrooms and every closet that I have. After I did that, I realized that I needed to have less fabric. So I've been selling it out of my house just slowly as people ask. And that's not a long-term plan, but I kind of think my options are very limited as to what I want to do. I'll tell you why I don't want to be an online shop. And this may sound silly, but when it was said to me, it really struck a chord and made me rethink a lot of things about online shopping and about, you know, the town. I'm very invested in Gilroy as a town. So what happened was a customer of mine who has several small children, she came into the shop and she was taking care of her kids and answering their questions and trying to shop for fabric. And in a joking way, I said to her, Isabel, why don't you just go home and buy your fabric online? It would be so much easier for you. And she said, no, I don't buy anything online. And I said, you're telling me you don't go to Missouri Star or whatever online shop? And she said, no, no, I don't. And I don't go to Amazon and I don't go to any of the other online shops. And I said, well, you don't buy anything online? And she said, no, I try not to. And I asked her why. And she said, it's for my kids. Because I have three, I think she has three, maybe four kids under the age, at that time, under the age of five. And she said, my kids are not going to have a choice. And I think that if I buy my groceries online and buy my books online and buy my fabric online, that the online businesses are so much cheaper to run 
maybe they're good for the amount of things they offer. Maybe they are bad because you don't always get what you think you're going to get. All the good and the bad, you can like it or not like it. But if we go that route, we as a community, we as a country go that route, the brick and mortar shops are not going to be there. And if the specialty shops that only exist in Connecticut get my business, then the specialty shops in California will now be gone and I'll be supporting the specialty shop in Connecticut. And if I buy my fabric there and my books there and my groceries there, what's left? And if the local fabric store and bookstore and grocery store go away, what's left in my town? A couple of nightclubs and a UPS shop. She said, there won't be towns. None of those businesses that are left will need each other. So if I go out to dinner, I can't walk down the street and browse in the windows and I can't go to the bar for a drink because there's no advantage to having all of those non-online businesses, service industries being together. There won't be downtowns. And I want my kids to have that. And that struck me so strongly that I realized I didn't want to be an online shop. I don't want to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. I think COVID changed that. I think it's pushed us a lot more in that direction. And that's been a really good thing for COVID. I think it's inevitable. I think we will lose all our local businesses, especially small businesses. But I want to be here as long as I'm here. <laughs> Again, it's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think two generations from now, I don't think there will be downtowns. I don't think you'll be able to walk downtown and just hang out. And that's just heartbreaking to me. Mm -hmm. So, no. I won't be an online shop. But what I am doing, I think, is starting to come up with kind of a business strategy. It's not even really a business. I had thought about opening or starting organizing a local guild, but I don't do very well with political part of it. I don't play very well with others when it comes to that kind of thing. Our town is close to a lot of bigger cosmopolitan areas where you can get fabric and you can take classes and you can do a lot of things. But on the other hand, as a small town, we have an awful lot of quilters here who have no immediate way to get in contact with each other. And I think there's a business model there. I think it involves maybe classes or presentations or I don't know what maybe even small shows, charity functions, things that we can do here as a group if we can get an established group that wants to do all those things. So it's my hope that I can somehow make that happen without it being an organized guild, more of a, I don't know, not like a business model similar to a library. If you want books or book-related things, you can come here. Mm -hmm. So. I don't know how that's going to play out, but I'm pulling together the resources to maybe make it happen. Yeah, don't know. Don't know where that's going, but it's going to turn into something. Yeah. It sounds like a puzzle that you'll have to solve. Yeah. 
there are enough people who want to see it happen. I think we'll figure it out. We just yeah. got to play with it a while. Mm-hmm. And is there anything else you would like to share with me today? I can't think of anything except to say that I think you're doing a great service to the quilting community. Well, thank you. By passing on all the various perspectives and hints and stories, because when it comes down to it, quilting's all about the stories and the people. So you're giving us all a way to see a bigger area of all those things. And that's really important. So thank you. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. And like you say, I thought I was doing it for me. <laughs> well, you probably are, but that's okay. <laughs> Just don't tell anybody. <laughs> I love hearing everybody's stories. Yes, definitely. The stories are the important part. Mm-hmm. Linda, this was great. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. Oh, thank you. It's been great fun. Uh-huh. Great fun. All right. Okay. You have a wonderful week, Paula. You too. All right. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com. Or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.